Our scripture reading this morning is from Proverbs 22, verse 6, one single verse. Train up a child in the way he should go. Even when he is old, he will not depart from it. May God bless his word. Amen. Well, in Scripture, the word Father is used about 1,100 times. But yet, in America, it's increasingly becoming harder to find a father in the home. According to the U.S. Census Bureau, 24 million children in America, one out of every three, now live in a home in which the biological father is absent. Increasing father involvement, and this will come as no surprise to all of you, I'm sure. Increasing father involvement in the lives of children is one of the most important ways that we address material and spiritual poverty in this country. One way we can do that is to reiterate the importance of fatherhood and the difference the presence of a father actually makes. Almost every study in social science confirms what the Bible already teaches, that fathers really, really matter. You know, one of the saddest songs that depicts the impact of an uninvolved father is Cats in the Cradle by Harry Chapin. The song paints a picture of a man who neglected his son only to have his son grow up and neglect his own son and his father as well. The song is told in first person by a father who's too busy with work to spend time with his son. And though the son asks him to join in childhood activities, the father never seems to have time for him. And he always responds by saying that he'll spend time with him later. You remember the first verse tells of the man's wife having the baby boy, but he's not present because there were planes to catch and bills to pay. The second verse is the father buying the son a baseball as a birthday present, and immediately the son wants to go out and play catch with him, but the father declines, and the son says, that's okay, Dad. While wishing to spend time with his father while growing up, the son starts to model himself on his father's behavior, saying, I'm going to be just like you, Dad. And the final two verses of the song reverse the roles, where the father asks his grown-up son to spend time with him after his college graduation, but the son declines, saying he wishes to borrow the, his dad's car. And the fourth verse has the father, who's now retired, inviting his son for a visit because his son has moved far away. The son politely declines, saying, my new job's a hassle and the kids have the flu, but it's been sure nice talking to you, Dad. The father then reflects that, they're bo- what, that they are actually both alike and that, it, in fact, his son has grown up just like him. And so it's appropriate this morning on Father's Day that we come to the book of Proverbs and the verse that we're considering profoundly illustrates the principle of Chapin's song, the importance. In fact, the whole book of Proverbs underscores the importance of not just actively involved fathers, but actively involved parents in the life of their children. Since, in fact, the book of Proverbs is basically a parenting manual. It really is a collection of wisdom that a father and mother are passing down to their children, specifically to their sons or their son. And the book of Proverbs is instruction 
which both king and queen as father and mother have given to their son. And this instruction has been written down and published for the benefit of every father and every mother, not only in the nation of Israel back in those days, but also in our own day. Chapters 1 through 9 of the book of Proverbs is a series of instructions from father and mother to their son to prepare the way for embracing the teaching that's contained in the collection of Proverbs that begin in chapter 10. If you've ever noticed that, chapters 1 through 9 are very different in some ways from chapters 9 through or 10 through 31. And that's in main part because 1 through 9 is basically a, 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 a prelude to what the, prover, the Proverbs that begin in chapter 10. And that prelude is the father and the father and the mother exhorting and encouraging the son to develop a heart of wisdom that's disposed to listen to the parents so that when chapter 10 arrives, those words won't land on a stony heart or deaf ears. And if you're familiar with the book of Proverbs, which I know most of you are, it includes instruction about a range of topics such as fearing God and guarding your mind and obeying your parents and choosing your friends carefully and controlling your body and enjoying your spouse and watching your words and working hard and managing money well and loving your neighbor, so on and so forth. And the verse that we come to this morning in our Twisted series is a popular verse that I'm sure many of us have heard. Proverbs 22, verse 6, train up a child in the way he should go and even when he is old, he will not depart from it. So then how should this verse be properly understood? Well, no doubt this proverb is a vastly well-known proverb in the church as it should be. It's a very important one. And this proverb has brought encouragement, hope, anxiety, guilt to countless parents who have faced the uncertainty and confusion we face in child rearing. You know, everything is so apparent until you become a parent. Parenting brings with it a a myriad of challenges and difficulties. And I used to have all kinds of answers when I wasn't a parent. Now I seem to have a lot less answers. But nonetheless, this proverb has provided encouragement to responsible parents who after working to balance family relationships and their career, find reassurance that all their labors will not be in vain and that the children that they have sought to raise responsibly will not depart from the instruction that they have given them. This verse has also provided rays of hope to those who have reared their child in the best way they knew, but then have had their hearts broken as they've seen their child rebel and walk away. And to those parents, this verse has given them hope that when He is old, the prodigal may yet return. Another group of young parents, sensitive to the daily feelings of inadequacy that we feel, experiencing intense anxiety over the possible long-term damage that we might bring to our children as a result of our parenting, have yet found reason to feel guilty from this verse, believing that if the child goes astray, the verse seems to point the finger of guilt right here. So what is this proverb intended to teach? Is it meant to fill us with guilt and anxiety if we don't get it right? Is it meant to be a promise that guarantees that if we raise our children in the discipline and instruction of the Lord, that they will never, ever walk away from God? Or if they do walk away, that they will one day come back. 
Well, I want to analyze this proverb this morning under three headings. And let's move into the first one now. The background of the proverb. I think it's important before we even dive into the verse properly that we need to keep in mind the nature or the genre of the Proverbs. Proverbs are not the same as promises. Proverbs are precepts, they're principles, they're things that are generally true. Proverbs are brief, lively, pithy statements that seek to capture some aspect of reality. Generally. The purpose of the Proverbs is to sharpen us to understand reality as opposed to living in a world of our own illusions. So the Proverbs are aimed at correcting our misperceptions, guiding us in forming a judgment about our thinking and behavior. They are not, nor were they ever intended to be, ironclad rules. And neither do they take into account all the contingencies, all the exceptions, or all the nuances of life. In fact, the very same man that wrote these Proverbs, King Solomon, also wrote the book of Ecclesiastes, which we spent about eight months journeying through. And you remember throughout that series on Ecclesiastes, we saw that life doesn't always follow the rules. Life is, has built into it because of the curse, uncertainty. A righteous man can live righteously and die very young. An old man can live wickedly and proceed to 96 years of age. That the battle, battle doesn't always go to the strong and the race doesn't always go to the swift. But the nature of Proverbs is that it's a type of genre of literature that is not meant to give you promises. It's meant to give you principles. It's get to, meant to give you precepts. It's meant to give you general guidance about the typical way reality works. Not ironclad rules about the way it will always work. And I think that's important for our study of Scripture. When we come to Scriptures, we have to consider the genre of the text that we're reading. This is a principle that we need to know as we come to the Bible. It's, 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 if we ignore that principle, we are open to widespread misuse and violation of the text of Scripture. So it's really, really important that we make sure that when we come to a passage of Scripture, we understand what sort of genre of literature it is. And last time I checked, Proverbs is not book of the law, right? It's not Torah. It's not first five books of the Old Testament. It's a wisdom literature, which means that it's providing general principles that reflect general reality. So that's important as we come to the second point, which is the meaning of the proverb. So with that background set, let's move into this text proper and look at verse 6. We're going to look at it in three parts since basically... Um, it has three parts to it. Now, for the, the time being, I'm going to ignore the second half of the verse. I'm going to come back to it a little bit later. But I'm just going to talk about that first phrase, train up a child in the way he should go. All right, so we're going to talk about what does train up mean, what does a child mean, and what does in a way he should go mean. All right, first of all, train up. Now, when we, when we typically think of train up, we typically think of instruction, right? Nurture. Discipline, teaching, developing a child in the way of wise moral character. Now, let me just say up front that the scriptures vastly teach the importance of that principle. That parents, according to Deuteronomy 6 and Ephesians 6, are to take primary responsibility for the nurture, the development, the growth, the instruction, the discipline of their children. And where that is absent... 
You can't beat the home most times. Teacher can't most likely fix it. Pastor can't most likely fix it. Church can't most likely fix it. But by by God's grace, it does happen. You're listening to somebody that it happened to. So, again, not an ironclad rule. We know many people that, that, have, that have rejected the Lord for long periods of time, did not grow up under the instruction of the word or in church, came to Christ at a later age, lived a fruitful life to the glory of God. We also know those who were raised in church, were in church every single time that the doors were open, were in youth meetings, seemed to walk an aisle at one time, pray a prayer at one time, got baptized at one time, made a confession of faith, walked with Christ for a little while, got to college, abandoned the faith, never came back. And to this day, as a 55-year-old person, they don't have any relationship that's at least obvious with the, with the God of Scripture. So, again, just to reiterate, I'm, I'm not saying that the principle of training up and instructing children is not important or foundational or given as a responsibility to parents. It certainly is. It's taught in major parts of Scripture, well-known parts of Scripture like the ones I just mentioned, Deuteronomy. Excuse me, Deuteronomy 6 and Ephesians 6. But is that what this phrase, train up, is referring to? Is it referring to nurture? Is it referring to instruction and discipline? I don't think so, primarily. And here's why. When you do a study of the word train up in Hebrew, it is never used in that way. It is not used to refer to parental instruction. If Solomon had wanted to choose that word, he could have. He he talks about discipline and instruction. There are lots of words in Hebrew that indicate instruction and, and wisdom and nurture and discipline, all of which could have been used in this passage, and it's not. Well, why not? Well, the word... Is, before, before we get to that, let's look at some of the other occurrences of the word um, train up or the word that's translated train up and see where it is used. It's actually, it's only used in four other places that I'm aware of in the Old Testament. And it nearly always appears in context of dedicating or initiating the use of buildings. It's a very unusual occurrence. Let's look at a couple of these places. Deuteronomy, turn back in your Bibles to the fifth book of the Bible. Deuteronomy chapter 20 and verse 5. Now, when we get here, you won't see the word translated train up. And there's a reason for that. It doesn't make sense in the context. But Deuteronomy chapter 20, verse 5. Then the officers shall speak to the people saying, Is there any man who has built a new house and has not... Here's the word, dedicated it. So it's the idea of dedication of a building. All right, let's keep going. Another, another occurrence of this word. First Kings chapter eight and verse 63. First Kings eight, 63. Solomon offered as peace offerings to the Lord, 22,000 oxen and 120,000 sheep. So the king and all the people of Israel dedicated, there's the word, same verb, the, the house of the Lord. And then finally, 2 Chronicles 7 5. 2 Chronicles 7 5. 
it's referring to the exact same um, event as was mentioned in 1 Kings 8.63, dedication of the temple. King Solomon offered as a sacrifice 22,000 oxen, 120,000 sheep. So the king and all the people dedicated the house of God. So this word, train up, is actually leaning more toward the idea of a dedication to or a celebration of something that has been dedicated for the first time. I mean, there was a big, huge celebration that took place at the dedication of the temple in Solomon's day. It was a celebration. It was, a, it was the marking of something for sacred use, consecrating it for the first time. And that's the idea that's captured in our word in Proverbs 22, 6, train up, to dedicate or to initiate or to celebrate. Now, what's the meaning of the word child? Child. Well, here's what's in one sense not helpful about the word child. The word child in Hebrew is not near, does not nearly have the same linguistic range as our word child in English. All right, our word child in English, when we say child, we typically think of somebody eight and under, nine and under, 10 and under maybe. But certainly once they hit to adolescence, I mean, they're not a child anymore. But the Hebrew word na'ar for child is not nearly that specific. In fact, the word applies to a wide variety of ages. For instance, 1 Samuel 4.21 uses the word for a baby that's just born. And it also uses the word for an infant that is not yet weaned in 1 Samuel 1.22. And the word child is used as a baby of three months in Exodus 2.6. But however, Joseph, at 17 years old, is referred to as a child in Genesis 37.2. And when he's 30 years old... He is still called a child in Genesis 41, 12. So the age is not the primary focus of the word. So what should we consider? Well, when we look at, when we look at a word like this and we know it has this wide range of possible meanings, then we ask, what does the context lend itself to as far as a possible meaning for that word? And it's really clear, I think, in the book of Proverbs that the word child seems to point consistently to an adolescent, adolescent that's on the threshold of maturity, right? The father and the mother throughout the entire book are instructing a son about choices that he's going to make, that he seems to be on the verge of making that are going to shape the rest of his life. Emphasizing his role in society and all the responsibilities that come with it. So the child in Proverbs, which occurs, the word na'ar occurs seven times in Proverbs. The evidence here seems to fit the idea that the child is an adolescent. It's not a little child. It's not saying train up a little child. It's saying initiate, dedicate an adolescent in the way he should go. Which has vast implications for how we interpret this verse and understand the responsibility that goes with it. So the advice given to the child is sexual advice in Proverbs 5, 6, and 7. You're not talking about that to a three-year-old. At least you shouldn't be. All right? Economic advice. Political instruction. Social graces. Military advice. 
I mean, all this seems more suitable for a young adolescent than a child. And that leads us to the third phrase, in the way he should go, or literally, according to his way. Now, this phrase has been, um, has, has no less than five different interpretations associated, associated with it. It's a, it's a difficult phrase because it doesn't show up very often, and, um, which makes it a, uh, um, a difficult phrase to interpret and understand correctly. Here's some options about how this phrase has typically been taken. Train up a child in the way he should go or in, in, according to his way has been understood as according to God's way. So it's a moral view, right? So the way is a path of morality. It's a way of righteousness. It's a way of wisdom. However, this is unlikely because universally in the Proverbs, the way is always used with a qualifier attached to it. There's a specific way that's talked about. For instance, Proverbs 6.23, the way of life. Proverbs 9.6, the way of understanding. The good way, Proverbs 2.20, the way of righteousness, chapter 16, verse 31. The evil way, chapter 2, verse 12. The way of the wicked, chapter 4, verse 19. So when the word way is used, it typically has an adjective attached to it, but there's no adjective attached to this word. Some have thought this, according to his way, refers to developing the unique capacities of a child. Perhaps you've read this in some parenting books. That train up a child in the way he should go is mean we need to be sensitive to the capacities, the interests, the inclinations of each child. Because not every child's exactly the same. And you need to be sensitive to that. And so preachers have said that the word way comes from a verb which can be used to bend a bow. So they say, well, we should understand here the idea of a child's bent and we need to train them in the way that they're bent. Well, that's a big, big stretch. All right. First of all, that idea is absolutely foreign to ancient Near Eastern culture. Where almost always the father and the son's relationship, the son did what the father did. The, the, the son was raised up to take over the responsibilities of the father. And so this whole idea is a very Western idea. It's a very post-industrial idea. It's not necessarily a biblical idea. Now, no one's going to deny the importance of sensitivity and, 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 a, and a parental sensitivity, especially to the capacities and the uniqueness of our children. That's part of wise parenting. That's part of not exasperating your children. Right, So we're not saying that you need to show a gross insensitivity and treat every child like they're the exact same. That's a good way to exasperate them. So we don't do that. But I don't think the primary understanding of Proverbs 22.6 is that we should train up a child according to their unique capacity or interests or inclinations. The final way this has been taken largely is a, is a largely negative way. The idea is that If you train up a child according to his way, that is according to the way that he wants, then when he's old, he probably won't depart from it. It's a negative idea. The way suggests that the verse is that the the way the verse is suggested is that if you rear a child by acquiescing to their desires, by giving in to them and their demands, then when they're old, they're going to grow up a very stubborn, selfish person. And of course, generally that's the case as well, but I don't think that's the primary meaning of the text. So what is the primary meaning of the text? Well, if we understand, train up the way the word is used in the Old Testament, and if we understand child as an adolescent, 
than to initiate or dedicate an adolescent. What's being talked about here is on the threshold of adulthood. It's very, very critical that the child gets dedicated and initiated the right way. And that to not do that is to fail in our responsibility to, 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 as parents to transition our children up into their responsibilities. So if we understand child as an adolescent, then it may be suggested that according to his way or in the way he should go means according to the dignity and responsibility that goes with being an adult. So it indicates the measure or standard of who the child is and what he is to become. So let me just break it down. This is what I think the verse teaches. I think the verse teaches that when someone in get, of an adolescent age on the cusp of adulthood, entering full maturity, engages in an activity for the first time, a celebration of the event would encourage him in the correct path. You don't think Jewish bar mitzvahs came out of nowhere, did you? Or a Hanukkah celebration, which is an Old Testament Jewish celebration of the rededication of the temple. So a word or deed of encouragement, which is in the train up, meaning dedicate, initiate, celebrate. This is a big event. A word or deed of encouragement, of recognition, of celebration that bestows respect and responsibility commensurate with the status of an adult is one of the most powerful aspects of parental involvement in the life of an adolescent. If the adolescent is given this type of dignity and recognition and celebration and encouragement the likelihood that he will willingly continue when he gets older because he has gained in that reputation or that position a dignity and a respect and a responsibility will likely continue because in that transition, he gained a healthy level of dignity, respect, responsibility, and satisfaction. And when that transition is made, and solidified by the community with celebration, with joy, with encouragement. The chances of him walking away from that are not likely. Although it could very well be the case. As we saw earlier. So since the Proverbs by and large are a parenting manual. And the word initiate suits an adolescent rather than a small child. The main teaching of the proverb seems to be that we should consecrate and initiate young people into their adult roles and responsibilities with celebration. Point number three, let me apply it. What does this have to say? I'm just going to speak to two areas of, for application purposes. We can go a lot of different places with this, but, but I want to stick to two I want, to, I, want to, I want to think together about how this understanding of the proverb impacts our cultural understanding of extended adolescence. Do you know what I mean by extended adolescence? It's a new phrase adopted in the last decade or so to describe this ongoing pattern 
whereby a person of adult age should be assuming adult responsibilities and yet nevertheless is not. I think the Wall Street Journal or the New York Times referred to men who are in this uh, season of life as boys who can shave. And parents and parenting is in part a problem with this because it's a permissive allowance of immaturity and an overprotection of the consequences of actions that enable this. Now, let's think about this. There are five traditional milestones, right, that mark an entrance into adulthood that sociologists, psychologists, and the general population have used as sort of a guideline to determine when someone has reached the tipping point of maturity. And we, I think we would all agree with this. All right, you leave home, right? You become financially independent. You complete school if you're going to school. Or you take on a trade or a vocation or a job. Most will marry and start a family and begin having children. Obviously, that's not the only way we gauge maturity. Okay, It's not just because a person is single. A single, responsible adult who is financially independent, owns their own house. That's not, that's not to say that they're not mature. Okay, I'm not saying that. I'm just saying generally in the milestones of, of, of the way we mark them, it's they grow up, they leave home. And let me just say, that's not just a sociological reality. That's a biblical reality. All right, that's Genesis 2.24. A man will leave his father and mother, cleave to his wife, become financially independent, establish a new family, a new home, and they'll bear children. Okay, so that's a biblical norm. It's not just a Western cultural idea that the church got up. This has been ongoing for centuries, the way that humankind, according to Scripture, have measured maturity. It's not all of a sudden our culture today stepping up and saying, hey, we need to redefine this. This is not the way maturity should be measured. We are the first civilization in the history of the world to think that way. And it's regression, not progress. It's making people captive to immaturity, not growing them up into dignity. It's it's a subhuman form of existence. So someone who is suffering from a period of extended adolescence would still live at home or in a home paid for by parents or other family members, still rely on parents or other family members to cover living expenses in the whole, still be enrolled in school in some capacity, still single, no children. All right, let's just, let's just step back and look at a couple of examples, okay? Here's an example of an adult. All right, just break it down, be, be basic, okay? 25-year-old teacher with a college degree, working full-time, married, has a child, owns their home, and pays their own living expenses. Or a 65-year-old janitor with a high school diploma, working full-time, widowed, never had any children, but owns his home and pays his own living expenses. All right? So I'm not trying to fit it into one specific thing. All right? What would be some examples of some extended adolescence? 35-year-old who pays part of their rent and bills covered by their parents, endlessly or aimlessly enrolls in colleges or works part-time jobs or whatever, single without any children. 
or a 45-year-old high school dropout living on social welfare programs spend their days getting drunk in bars. Right? So those are just two rather extreme examples, and I, I pick them on purpose as extreme examples. But I think this understanding of train up a child in the way he should go, and even when he's old, he won't depart, of it, depart from it. If we understand it as initiating an adolescent into adulthood, then it places a great, great responsibility on us as parents to make sure that we, by God's grace and with the help of the church and others, that we help to, to, to steward our children and get them up into adulthood and full maturity and all that that means. Independent of us, financially, vocationally, living their own life, responsible for themselves and those whom God has entrusted to their care at whatever stage of life they might be in. But church, we need to be, according to scripture, a beacon in this reality where we are in the face of our culture, not understandable because we have kids that are getting married and financially responsible at 21 or 22 or 30, but they're, they're, they're taking on responsibility and we're giving it to them. We're not sheltering them from it. We're calling them up into it and celebrating every step along the way. Is it perhaps... Perhaps a reason why extended adolescence has become so normative in our culture is because adulthood is not celebrated. It's not celebrated. It's not seen as the good life. And it's the good life. It is. It's great to be independent. And yet have those who depend on you. As your children And if you're a man, your wife. And so I've just seen it. I've seen it over and over. And I don't, I've seen it not only with friends of mine. I've seen it in the lives of my students and their families for a decade. And it's not getting better. It's not getting better. People aren't calling their kids up into adulthood. And not entrusting responsibility to them. And letting them fail. And learn. Please don't rob your children of the opportunity to fail. And to learn from it. And to grow from it. And I know I'm speaking to, someone, to, to many people who have been there. And you are my models in this way. I'm not speaking down to most people in this church. You are examples of this. You ha- I've watched you as you have entrusted responsibility to your older children and you have celebrated those steps and they have stepped up into it and exercise responsibility and are becoming progressively more independent. It's fantastic to watch and it's an example to me and I want to be like you. I'm seeing it from the perspective of somebody who's watched and interacted with tons of families over the years and seen the wreck that comes when kids aren't called up into responsibility and they're not called up into Dignity, really. Dignity. You are an image bearer of God. A prince of creation. 35 weeks with video games is not your, the height of your glory. Who cares if you got past the level? Now, I'm not picking on one group of people and just throwing them under the bus. They're walking under the bus themselves. 
All right. And so what I'm saying is we need as our culture and as a church, especially because we can't control what the culture is going to do. But we need to as a, as representatives of Christ and in obedience to his word, call our kids up into adulthood. And dads, it starts with us. It starts with us. So that's what I wanted to say sort of as a as a cultural thing. And now let me let me close with this. I think we need to take celebration a lot more seriously and throw a lot more parties than we do. When someone engages in an activity for the first time, like one of our adolescent children, a celebration of that event would be fitting and encouraging that to them. They get the car, right? They get the, got the driver's license. All right. Mom and dad are there or mom's there or dad's there and celebrates with them this new achievement, this new responsibility. They got the car, they pray over the car, (laughs) pray over the kid, but let them step into that and celebrate that new milestone or graduation from high school or the choosing of a college or the choosing of a career or enlistment in the military. And we celebrate that. We encourage them in that. We strengthen their hands in that. And not just the parents, but the whole church community celebrates that. And as we do that, as we celebrate that, as we give encouragement and recognition, we bestow tremendous respect upon that adolescent. Tremendous dignity upon that adolescent. And where they feel dignified and respected and responsible, those are powerful motivators. Powerful. And where that dignity is absent, where that motivation is absent, where that encouragement is absent, don't be surprised if the responsibilities are not there either. Or the prolonging of immaturity. In fact, biblically thinking about this, is this not what the father in Luke 15 did when his son came home and demonstrated some maturity? He threw him a party based upon his repentance on the first sign that he's not an adolescent anymore. He's an adult. He's recognizing he has responsibilities. He can't just go live in Vegas. Ends up with the pigs, comes home, maybe, got, maybe he'll hire me as a slave. No, the father celebrates. And part of the reason the father celebrates is it because it would have been customary in that culture to celebrate adulthood. Train up a child in the way he should go, and when he's old, he will not depart from it. And so the celebration of adulthood is a celebration that is fitting of the occasion My lost son has returned. The prodigal has come home. He's repented. He's demonstrating maturity. Praise God. Spare no expense. This is a big, big, big deal. And it's really, really important that we get this right, the father says. So slay the fattened calf. Get the robe. Put dignity on that kid. Put responsibility on that kid. Confirm him in what he has done. And when he's old, 
he might not depart from it. So, is this not what God the Father... I mean, this is a picture of conversion, right? It's a picture of the gospel. And this is why we celebrate and do what we do, because this is what God does for us. When we were converted, heaven threw a party. Heaven threw a party. That's why it is entirely appropriate, and I think we should do it more and louder and possibly get a little woot-woots up in here when we baptize people. This is okay. It's a celebration. It's a party. This is a huge moment. So we as a church family celebrate it because God celebrates it. God celebrates it. And so if we want to parent like God, then our, especially in our teen years, which are some of the most difficult years and those I'm not there. So again, all theory. All right. So thank you for what it's worth. Not there yet. I'm not parenting teens yet, but I've worked with teens a lot. And I know that celebration bestows dignity. And if we celebrate and we call our kids up into adulthood through celebration and initiation and bestow upon them the dignity and the respect, then I think we will see them step up more and more. And we have seen it, and that's why we've seen it. So let me conclude with this poem, and then I'll pray. Listen to this. It illustrates perfectly what we've been talking about. I took a piece of plastic clay and idly fashioned it one day. And as my fingers pressed it still, it moved and yielded at my will. I came again when days were past. The bit of clay was hard at last. The form I gave it still it bore, but I could change that form no more. I took a piece of living clay and gently formed it day by day and molded with my power and art a young child's soft and yielding heart. I came again when days were gone It was a man I looked upon. That early impress still he wore, and I could change it nevermore. Let's pray. Father, thank you for giving us the gospel. The gospel is your son and what he has done, his living for us, his dying for us, his rising again for us. And when through that gospel and that message, we, by your grace, heard it and were converted, you threw a party. You celebrated because these sons, these daughters of yours once were dead and now they're alive. Lord, help us as parents. Give us grace. Help us to hold on to this verse and those of us who have perhaps look back with a degree of guilt and fear. Help us not be paralyzed by that. God, help us to not be paralyzed by the fact that your grace is greater than all sin. And oftentimes you are pleased to, in the ways that we have failed, to demonstrate your power and your glory all the more because in your weakness, you de- in our weakness, you demonstrate your great grace and strength. So, Lord, help us wherever we need to be helped, wherever we are in this journey of parenting. I pray specifically for those who are right now in the midst of parenting teenagers. 
that you would give them great grace as they, as they help to initiate them into adulthood, help them to do it with celebration, help them to do it with uh, great recognition and give, give more and more, uh, pronounce more and more dignity upon their sons and daughters as they step more and more into adulthood. Help us, God, as parents, not to get in the way of the maturity of our children, but to encourage them into that, to not be overprotective helicopter parents, but rather let them learn to fail, to grow, and to be by their side all the way to support and bless. God, we need grace for this. We ultimately need great grace from you and relationship with you to have the heart formed by the gospel that we need to shepherd our children after your own heart. And we ask this for the glory of your name. Amen.